You are listening to EE Times On Air, and this is EE Times Current. I'm Eric Singer. Today's podcast is sponsored by Power Integrations, the leader in high-voltage integrated circuits for energy-efficient power conversion. Today, we return to our conversation with Peter Vaughn, Director of BizDev for Automotive at Power Integrations. But first, here are some of the headlines we're covering in EE Times. Vietnam sets sights on becoming semiconductor hub. In this video interview, we hear what Dong Hua, chairman of FPT Information Systems, and Nguyen Vinh Quang, founder and CEO of FPT Semiconductor, have to say about FPT's ambition, their PMIC product roadmap, and how the company is establishing the first semiconductor facility in Hanoi. What it takes for AMD to bring AI into space. AMD's latest RAD-tolerant SoC aims to take the first steps in trying to figure out how to maximize AI-capable compute resources in space. Snapdragon 8 Gen 3 evolves smartphones to genius phones. Thanks to Qualcomm's latest Snapdragon 8 Gen 3 mobile SoC, multimodal generative AI will be coming soon to smartphones, delivering 15 to 30 tokens per second, depending on the model. Welcome back to part two of our conversation with Peter Vaughn. If you haven't yet heard the last episode, pause here, go back and listen. You'll be in for a treat. For those of you who have heard it, I know you'll enjoy the second half of this interview, which is an in-depth look at the present technologies used in electric vehicles and the future of the field. Welcome back, Peter. Thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you. It's great to be back. Last time, we went all the way through the history of EVs, which naturally brought us up to the modern day and the inescapable name of Tesla. Obviously, the brilliant work of Martin Eberhard, Mark Tarpening, and the original team of engineers at Tesla Motors changed the landscape of EVs today. But have they been the only ones driving recent innovations? Yeah, you're right. It became an icon. It's got a tremendous brand recognition now. Because we've seen this transition coming back to the idea that you no longer have the internal combustion engine, so you're free to design the chassis of the vehicle very differently. And there's this move to, they call it the skateboard chassis. So essentially, the the battery pack becomes integrated with the chassis. It becomes a structural part of the the vehicle. And you have the motors, inverters, and, and everything in that sort of skateboard arrangement. But that was actually a concept that um, General Motors showed in 2002. There was a show which showed a skateboard-type design with batteries and a fuel cell and in-wheel motors. So again, we had to <laughs> this creativity. Here we are in 2023. 20 years ago, that was already in the minds of Detroit. Again, this just tremendous amount of creativity. And basically, having a concept that now is being implemented and put onto the road. Yeah. So we've talked about how paramount safety is here for obvious reasons. And we've talked about that in the context of interference. How do you address, besides the changes that have been made in terms of frequency allocation for um, industrial or governmental applications like like radar and, and other over-the-air signals, talk a little bit about what else you need to think about with 
these safety-critical designs in the respect of, of shielding them from any outside interference or other safety concerns that people have about, about the transition to electric? Yeah, I think maybe I start with the basic requirement for a vehicle is that when the driver commands the vehicle to move or stop, it does, and it never does that without an explicit input from the driver. So no unintended acceleration, no unintended deceleration for basic motion, and the same things with braking and the same things with steering. So essentially those are the the very fundamental aspects of what you need um, vehicle safety. On top of that, there's fire. And in the case of electric vehicles, electric shock, because that's another potential serious hazard. In designing the subsystems, there is this concept of functional safety, and there is a classification for each function in the vehicle called the automotive safety integrity level. And it basically goes A through D. For example, unintended acceleration means that you ha- your subsystem has to achieve ASIL-D as a system. And what that really means is under any fault condition, you know, any component failure, cabling failure, um, power system failure, the 12 volt system fails, for example, the vehicle must not have any chance of unintended acceleration or such a low probability that is deemed acceptable. So within the auto industry, there is a entire group in product development that functions to make sure that the subsystem achieves those functional safety goals and achieves the relevant ASIL level. Speaking of subsystems, a common theme I feel like that's coming up here is that the perceived resistance to change in the automotive industry seems to be largely consumer-driven. What we don't understand, we fear. In current ICE vehicles, we talk about the, the danger of shock as one of these things that people are cite as additional concerns with EVs. But don't we have high-voltage systems running in ICEs currently that, that are running on the, the high-voltage bus? The hybrids were actually the first vehicles that went to 200 and 300 volts. And the electrical system, though, was separated from the passenger compartment. And, you know, if you open an electric vehicle, you'll see the bright orange cables, which the industry has adopted to indicate that those are high voltage uh, connections. But again, the amount of safety systems that have been put into now battery electric vehicles is fantastic. All of the subsystems are connected to the high voltage system are monitored, it's referred to as an isolation monitor. So it's constantly measuring what the resistance is between the high voltage battery and the chassis of the vehicle. So the chassis you can consider as ground potential. So, and that's what you would touch. And if there is any leakage, any breakdown in insulation, between the high voltage system and the chassis of the vehicle, it shuts off the high voltage system. There are big contactors in the battery pack that open to to disconnect it. So you've got physical separation and insulation of connectors and cables. And on top of that, you've got this isolation monitor that's constantly verifying that there is an electrical fault. 
It's the same idea as the outlet you probably have in your bathroom. That's a GFCI, mm -hmm. so ground fault detection outlet that will cut off the power if it detects that you know you've made contact with the line of the AC outlet. So same idea is a fault, a shock protection system. And on top of that, in the event of a crash, a serious impact, there are features inside the vehicle, the contacts are all open. They actually have a, they call it a pyro fuse. And there's an explosive charge, a bit like an airbag, but it's an mm -hmm. airbag to disconnect the battery. So there's an explosive charge and a shaped piece of metal that literally cuts through the cable or the bus bar inside the battery pack to disconnect it. Wow, that's dramatic. Again, it, it's the, the level of scrutiny that's been put into this is fantastic. And it makes me smile because, wind back to the internal combustion engine, 1900s, you know, I can imagine these days going to, I live in California, going to the, the state of California saying, hey, I've got this great idea for a mode of transportation. You know, you've got four wheels and it's a bit like a horse buggy mm. and you're pouring this highly flammable liquid <laughs> that if you have a static discharge, it will explode into flames. <laughs> it's carcinogenic. And, and we'll have people, the public, will go to a, a station and they pump it in and they can pour it on the floor. They can pour it you know, it would never happen. Never, it never. In never a million, you're driving around in a Molotov cocktail. Yes. And it, it, the statistics I read is it's about 50 times. It's 50 times more likely that a gasoline-powered car will catch fire than an electric vehicle. So it's, <laughs> again, it's one of these perception problems. It's just noteworthy because it's different. Same thing with filling a car with this flammable liquid. We're so familiar with it, we accept the risk, mm -hmm. even though the risk is actually non-zero. Yeah, isn't that interesting? We're, we're talking about, first of all, driving an automobile at all of any sort is an incredibly risky proposition, yes. right? There's a million things that can go wrong at any instant, whether it's it's mechanical, driver error, environmental, there are a million things that, that can go wrong. And we accept that risk because we love moving ourselves around in this way. But yeah, the resistance to something new, and, and we hear all kinds of arguments around this from whether it's the vehicles themselves or catastrophic predictions of the entire electrical grid collapsing because we can't afford to supply electricity to all the vehicles if we all go electric. Yeah, that's another that's another good topic. You're going to take me off on another tirade. I'll do of, this all day, pal. Uh, yeah, that, that's another interesting one. I mean, you have to go look at the data in order to understand that it's really not a problem. But intrinsically, intuitively, if you just think about, oh, my goodness, if everyone plugs in at the same time, we got all these vehicles, it's going to cause a problem. So it, it one of those ones where it feels like it should be a problem, but in reality, it's not. And it's certainly not going to be a problem for another decade. That gets me thinking about data centers, Bitcoin mining. Yeah. These feel like the trends we should be worried about. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking, I'm currently looking at my, my iPhone. If you look at what's happening with things like smartphones, and then our move to AI is also going to be quite interesting. Because we don't think about all of those uh, cat videos that we watch or we're scrolling through Instagram. That all of that data is being processed at a data center. 
that's consuming a lot of energy, either directly through the computing and storage aspects of the, the function that the server farm provides, but also the cooling you need to remove the waste heat from those servers. DOE and Energy Star programs have made those servers much more efficient than they were 20 years ago. But just the volume, the, the number of, the amount of processing that we need in server farms has just exploded with smartphones. And then AI actually changes the demand profile in data centers because it's going to stop being a data center. So if you think about data center is most of it is about retrieving information. Yeah. Whereas with AI, it's actually compute power. Mm. So it's going to be more energy intensive, certainly to begin with. Peter, getting back to batteries for a second, EVs are essentially big old batteries on wheels. So it seems weird to me that they still often have these 12-volt lead-acid batteries in them. Why do they still have these? Yeah, they still do. There's been a move from lead-acid to lithium-ion because it's much lighter. It also helps improve reliability because it's ironic that I mentioned at the beginning how the first vehicles you take the engine, the powertrain, the gas tank out and put in batteries and a motor because you had a platform that had to support an internal combustion inversion and a battery version. You still had to have a 12-volt battery. But if you only have a battery electric version, why do you need a 12-volt battery? And that's, to your point, that's exactly what's happening now. There's a, a move to eliminate it. There's a great example of this I came across on the Power Integrations website. It's a design example report for a 100-watt flyback power supply for 400-volt DC automotive applications as a replacement for the good old 12-volt lead-acid battery using the 900-volt Powagan-based InnoSwitch 3AQ that I'd encourage you to check out. On their site, it's listed as DER953Q. There's lots of benefits, actually. One is you eliminated a component, so there's cost, there's weight, there's space. And secondly, it turned out in electric vehicles, which had a lead-acid 12-volt battery, it was the number one cause of the vehicle failing. You know, the battery would die. <laughs> oh, the irony. And you talk to early electric vehicle owners, and they would they will all tell you that's happened to them. And, and it's even more complicated for the automotive industry because there are so many modules now in a vehicle that all have software, that all have to have some sort of sleep standby mode. So it's very easy for, especially in the early, early years of a vehicle model, for a module to have a, a problem where it doesn't go to sleep properly. And then the 12-volt the battery gets depleted. And then you come out, even though you have an electric vehicle with a huge traction battery, <laughs> It, it won't start because the 12-volt battery has been discharged overnight. And so we, there's been a transition from a big lead-acid lead to a much, much smaller lithium-ion 12-volt battery. But then features started to get added. So the 12-volt battery is still being used for standby. So when the vehicle's off, the electrical systems in the car are being run from that 12-volt battery. So things like your remote entry, the communication telemetry. But then things get added like sentry mode or security mode, where you're running the advanced driving assistance cameras as a security video recording system. Mm -hmm. 
and that consumes quite a lot of power. Yeah. So now you have the problem where the battery, you want to increase the size of the battery. <laughs> Again, I come back to why you've got a huge battery, why not eliminate it? And that's essentially what's happening. So take the battery out and provide the 12 volt system from power conversion, power supplies directly from the high voltage 400 or 800 volt battery, traction battery. And that's essentially one of the things I'm working with OEMs on, OEMs and tier ones to do exactly that. But I mentioned functional safety earlier. And so you've now got to consider the redundancy, what happens if the one of the power supplies fails and so on. You still have to ensure that you maintain that basic level of safety for the driver and occupants and people around the vehicle when it's driving. So you solve that, you put additional converters, lower power converters that operate the vehicle when it's in standby. So truly you're just replacing the 12 volt battery with a power supply that is designed for a couple of hundred watts and it will supply the, the vehicle when you're in a key off condition. So that's when you're parked, you're charging, and you then can have these additional features on the vehicle without ever worrying about the 12 volt uh, battery going flat. It also helps the software issue. So if you've launched a new vehicle and you have a problem with a module that doesn't go to sleep, it doesn't cause the inconvenience to the, to the owner of the 12 volt battery going flat. So you have the opportunity, the telemetry will tell you there's a problem. You can do an OTA software update and fix it the customer will never be inconvenienced and never know that this was even an issue. Wow. And then there was another interesting benefit, which is when you're charging, so the, the way the miles per gallon electric, so the equivalent miles per gallon for an electric vehicle is calculated. And again, this is to help people understand the fuel efficiency of an electric vehicle in terms of they understand. So again, it's we're coming back to the horsepower. <laughs> we measure horsepower. We still have a number for an electric vehicle that is miles per gallon, but it's the equivalent miles per gallon if it was an internal combustion engine powered vehicle. But that miles per gallon number includes the losses during charging. One of the benefits of eliminating the 12 volt battery and replacing it with a very efficient power supply for this key off standby condition is your miles per gallon E number gets better because you're not running uh -huh. when you're charging this big, inefficient three kilowatt power supply. Right. And so it's the difference you know, of you save a kilowatt hour in charging your vehicle. And so over the life of the vehicle, that one kilowatt hour is, if you've got a 60 kilowatt hour battery, that's the equivalent of one to 2% yeah. more higher MPGE number than if you didn't have the high efficiency. Yeah. And that's no small shakes when you think about the kinds of compromises engineers have been forced to make to eke out a 1% gain in efficiency, like having skinny, yeah. harder tires and, and things like this that, that negatively impact the, the driving performance or the overall experience. This is something with, with no downside. We're eliminating points of failure. We're gaining efficiency. We're uh, in charging and in power retention, um, not to mention presumably weight of the vehicle as yep. well. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and what I like about this, and again, this is the way the automotive industry thinks, it's, it's very collaborative. Yeah. So if you save space, if you save space and weight, that gives the manufacturer flexibility and choices of what to offer the consumer. 
So they can, the, that weight and space can be, you basically you have an allocation now that you can put somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So you can put that weight, space, and cost into a larger battery pack for more range mm-hmm. or more interior space for the occupants or a storage space at the front of the vehicle. It just, it, I find that you know, this, they have some very high level goals They've been crafted over many years. It's the same goals, whether it doesn't matter what the powertrain is, but it's the same goal. Make it smaller, make it lighter, fewer components. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then as you dig down to those goals, they fan out. Fewer components equals higher reliability, easier supply chain, lower service costs. So I, I really, you know, again, that that you you only get that from an industry that has been optimizing for a hundred years. So Although we've got parts of this industry that are revolutionary and new, that the powertrain has completely changed, the high-level fundamentals still stay the same in terms of consumer choice, making the vehicle more attractive, giving them, giving the occupants more space, improving safety. All of these things are still absolutely at the core of, of what a successful automotive company has to do. On the day we recorded this conversation with Peter, some of his colleagues from Power Integrations were on the other side of the world, cheering on a Swiss team in Bridgestone's World Solar Challenge race. It's a grueling 3,000-kilometer race from Darwin, Australia to Adelaide. Team Alpha Centauri asked Power Integrations to help them design a power converter based on their 750-volt InnoSwitch product. With PI's IC and expert design support, the team not only boosted energy efficiency to 95.7% during maximum power operation, but they also improved efficiency by more than 50% while the system drives light loads, which is most of the time. Here's that team's main electrical engineer, Aaron Greaser, describing the extra scrutiny they got from race officials who couldn't believe their DC-to-DC converter. When they took a look at it, they were kind of strangely watching, and I was asking, like, what's what's going on? And then they asked, like, is this your DC-to-DC converter? And I was, yes, this is our DC-to-DC converter. And, um, yeah, they were super surprised that there was no cover, no heatsink. It was just, like, pure parts. And uh, they, yeah... They were super excited seeing that. I love that the scrutineering officials couldn't believe their eyes. One of your colleagues, Doug, was with us uh, a couple of months ago, and and we talked a lot about the kind of amazing avenues that moving from silicon carbide to GAN in, in automotive applications opens up. Can you talk to us a little more about, from your perspective, what those possibilities are and maybe just a little primer on what those uh, additional benefits of GAN are. Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, you know, we talked about this 12-volt battery replacement and providing standby supplies. And it turns out that GAN is just perfectly suited for those kind of applications. And it ties in nicely with what I said about fewer components, smaller, lighter all of those things GAN can help achieve in a power supply design. I work with um, OEMs and tier ones, and one of the solutions we have is a 900 volt automotive qualified uh, GAN power IC. And what that allows us to do, or what GAN allows us to do, is produce pretty high power supplies that don't require heat sinking. So GAN 
provides very low on resistance and very low switching losses so that we can do these very low component count solutions with very simple topologies that hit greater than 95% efficiency. And it's interesting because for automotive, the efficiency number is not so important, but the reduction in losses that means that you've, in order to get 95% efficiency, you have to have very low losses and losses equals heat. And that's always the challenge. If you have to operate at 85 or 105 degrees Celsius, and you don't want to have any sort of active cooling, fans are frowned upon because they're, they have a relatively short lifetime. They're, they're, Hard to get to. Yeah, airflow, blocking, dust. Yeah, having a solution that doesn't require heat sink and doesn't require active cooling is, again, it fits one of those. It's fewer components and it's lighter weight and it's more reliable. And so our InnerSwitch 3, the GAN version or InnerSwitch 3 product, is just a, turns out to be a fantastic solution for these kind of power supply requirements in automotive. So looking back a few years before adoption of GAN, a 300-watt power supply without any active cooling, that was inconceivable, right? Absolutely. And that's what is so interesting about GAN as a technology, and actually as a company, we have products that use silicon carbide and use GAN, and we just pick the optimum technology node for the applicate the needs of the application. And for automotive, it, this very low loss is critical. And it also enables us to do a high level of integration, shrink the volume, the size of the power supply. And that's also, again, it comes back to the idea of trying to make things as small and light as possible. And GAN, we've talked a bit about resistance to change primarily by consumers. Shifting that topic over to engineers, do you experience any resistance? At this point, as as Doug walked us through in in a, a previous episode, you've got millions uh, of hours of testing GAN out there in the real world in these consumer electronic devices and elsewhere. Do Is there still any resistance to deploying GAN in the applications where it is best suited by the engineering community? They've been exceptionally open to new technologies and new ideas. So I think the answer to the question is no, there's been very little resistance. Because this is relatively new, the automotive world has been sort of walled off, and, and not in a in a negative way, but it's just a very different market segment to the consumer electronics and industrial markets. Here we, we're coming along from the consumer world with a automotive product, and I would say there's been a sort of level of amazement because the engineers that typically have been working on 12-volt systems, now they're working on high-voltage systems, so they haven't had decades of, of experience looking for or finding good high voltage solutions. When we come along and present something with a level of integration that we can achieve, I think there's actually been some open mouths moments. <laughs> I bet. They're like kids in a candy store. Honestly, I had one engineer who started shouting. And there's that moment when you're in that interaction going, oh, my goodness, what did I do? And he just said, <laughs> I have been busting my ass for the last six months 
to achieve what you've done in half the components and half the board area, <laughs> and your performance is higher. So it's that. It's cheaper, it's faster, it's lighter. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And to your point about what the, what the automotive industry does absolutely 100% demand is proof of your quality and reliability. And to your point, this is where the consumer, the, the fact we're using the same technology in products that go into the consumer market, where the volumes are substantially higher, means we have a trillion device hours of, of operation of our GAN in the field, in the consumer space. And we have essentially zero, we've actually had zero GAN device failures. And so when you can present that data to the quality groups at the, the automotive customers, then they get really excited because it's not, they're very cautious about, not about new technology, but about that it's proven and that it's going to be reliable. And frankly, as a vendor, so are we, because we absolutely need to make sure that the product in the end application is never going to fail. You know, this zero PPM uh, mentality is critical in automotive. With very real, very dire consequences in the event of, of, of some kinds of failure. Exactly. And it is because there's a concern that if you require software to communicate with the power supply, then there's an opportunity for a software update to essentially brick the car. Mm-hmm. So if you have the, a, a way of, of commanding the power supplies to turn off and you turn all of them off, you lose the 12-volt system, and then there's no way of communicating to yeah. turn it back on again. So it's been quite interesting. The the reaction, or the question is always, do you have any software in there? Do you need software? Does it need a communication? It's no, it's completely standalone. And it's, oh, good, that's excellent. Yeah, <laughs> that's what we want. What other changes do you see coming up? Or, or do we know? Is it as... We listen to you describe these wonderful, eye-opening interactions and this innovative spirit and innovative history that automotive engineers have that, that we should celebrate. Sometimes what innovation looks like, we may not know yet. It's going to take you walking into the room and giving them, showing them a 300-watt power supply that doesn't need to be cooled for them to even start thinking about, oh, what can we do with that? You, funny you say that, but that's, have I had exactly that experience yeah. of, of actually, why don't, we, why don't we do a completely distributed power architecture? The telecom industry uh, uses that quite a bit. But to, to answer your question, yeah, I don't know. And that's why this is so exciting. Is. And also why in, interacting with the design engineers and the, the system architects is so rewarding because it's a genuine collaboration of what's, the, what's achievable, what's the art of the possible. And we don't have to worry. We have a blank sheet of paper. We can re-architect the entire electrical system of the vehicle. And that's just so fun. But to give you a specific example, I, I fully expect 12 volts to go to a higher voltage because there's no real restriction now to go, that stops you going from 12 to 36 or 48 volts. So mm-hmm. again, staying below that safety extra low voltage threshold of 60 volts. But up, up until that, there's really no reason not to. This was tried before. Interestingly, I know if you go back 20 years, there was a move to go to higher voltages. But the problem there was something very practical, which was things like relays. 
Mm. Relays with stick, with a higher voltage, you get more arcing on the contacts, so you get more damage to the contacts when they open and close. And so the relays would stick. But these days, it's all semiconductors. Right. So there's really, there's no mechanical limitation anymore. So I expect that 12 volts will go to a higher level. And to give you an example, the reason for that, again, comes back to those, make it smaller, fewer components, make it lighter. If you go even just from 12 volts to 16 volts, you reduce the weight of the copper needed on the internal bus bars or the heavy cabling that's carrying the 12 volts through the system by about 40 or 50%. Wow. So you can dramatically reduce the weight of the copper in a vehicle. And so that hits two things, right? It hits the weight and it also hits cost because copper is, is expensive. Mm-hmm. Yep. That change will, I'm sure, will happen. And do you foresee those, if, if we, let's say we go to 36 volts, is that still, for the foreseeable future, a, a separate battery? Or is, could that draw from the powertrain battery through a separate power supply? Yeah, the nice thing about it, as soon as you have it from a power supply, you can actually make it dynamic if you want it. Yeah. You can have the power supply vary that voltage depending on a set of conditions. So yes, it can be literally any voltage that the system architect wants. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. Eric, it has been my complete pleasure. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity. Today, the electric vehicle revolution is in full swing. Technological advancements have made electric cars more accessible, efficient, and convenient than ever before. Electric vehicles are helping us reduce our carbon footprint, clean our city's air, and pave the way towards a more sustainable future. So next time you plug in your electric vehicle at a charging station, remember that you're continuing a legacy that dates back over a century. A legacy that started with remarkable vehicles like the Baker Electric and Detroit Electric faded into the background, but now is shining brighter than ever. And as we look towards that sustainable future, join us for a free virtual event December 12th and 13th, Power Up Energy, Powering the Future by Renewable Energy, where we bring together global industry leaders to discuss cutting-edge energy engineering developments and strategies for swiftly advancing towards net-zero carbon emissions. Visit this episode's webpage for more info on that, as well as links to the stories we mentioned at the top of today's show. That brings another episode of EE Times Current to its end. Thank you for listening, and thanks again to our guest, Peter Vaughn from Power Integrations. EE Times Current is available through the major podcast platforms, but if you get to us at our website at eetimes.com, you'll find a transcript of this episode. EE Times Current is produced by EE Times. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder, Colorado. I'm Eric Singer. Thanks for listening.